in this episode of the Exponential Performance Podcast. Lessons from the lab. How protein ingestion before bed improves recovery. The merino wool myth. What I hate about Garmin heart rate GPS monitors. And we dive in to the World Anti-Doping Association potential ban on caffeine. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Matty Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. Welcome to episode two of the Exponential Performance Podcast. My name's Matty Graham and over the next about 60 minutes, we're going to dive deep into some performance-related uh, topics to help you train smarter and work towards your goals. Before we get underway, I just wanted to cover some bit of housekeeping on how to access and hopefully get the best out of this podcast. Now, if you're listening right now, you've obviously figured out how to get uh, a hold of this podcast, but I just wanted to make you aware of the other platforms that I am uploading this to. So the first one is SoundCloud. SoundCloud is a pretty neat little platform. If you aren't listening on SoundCloud at the moment, make sure you jump over there and subscribe over there so you don't miss out on any of the uploads. Also, I am uploading this to YouTube. Got a big following over on YouTube with the other videos. I upload about training so if you are listening on SoundCloud and haven't checked out the YouTube channel yet make sure you get over there because there's a lot more over there than just this podcast make sure you hit the subscribe button you'll get updates every time I upload a new video I am also working on getting this up on Stitcher and also iTunes so hopefully whatever platform you prefer listening to your podcasts on you can get a hold of this easily. If there's some platform that I've missed and you like listening to podcasts on it where you think that I should be on there, let me know. I'll sort it out at this end. If you've got questions, please leave a comment on whatever platform that you are listening on, whether it be YouTube, paste it in the comment section. Even if it's not a question, it's just a comment, things you'd like to see more of, that sort of thing please let me know. Give it a thumbs up, the like button there, please. That helps get this out to more people and helps me at my end as well. If you've got a question for the show, what I want to do is try and get as many voice questions on here to make it more interactive and more exciting so it's just not my voice rabbiting on. So what I've done is over on the Exponential Performance Facebook, oh sorry, over on the Exponential Performance website, I've got a link where you can record a voice message and then I'm able to play that on the podcast and then answer the question. So it's you answering the, asking the question, me answering it. Hopefully that'll be a bit better than me reading out the questions. So if you've got a question, head over there to the Exponential Performance Coaching website, hit the record button, record your message, and then I will do my best to answer it on here. What I'm going to do is prioritize answering voice messages over written messages or written questions. So hopefully it makes the podcast a little bit more exciting. So if you've got a question, please send it through. If you've got a comment, 
please leave that on whatever platform you're listening give me a thumbs up let me know what I'm doing well let me know what you'd like to see done differently after all I want this podcast to be about you so let's crack into it I hope you've been uh, training hard this week and what I wanted to kick off with with this with a segment uh, about gear and I've termed it gear junkie bits of gear no doubt everyone does everyone loves talking about it buying it using it so what I wanted to talk about today is uh, Garmin heart rate GPS monitors I currently uh, use the Garmin 910 XT great little unit I use it on the bike uh, kayaking and running before the the 910 I had the 310 again a great unit they didn't really change much between them just sort of streamlined them a little bit before that I was a polar man to be honest I used polar with all of my heart rate um, but then when Garmin came out with their you know compact GPS system I don't think polar was able to match it they had the arm pods they had a few other options but it didn't match what Garmin had at the time I recommend Garmin to a lot of the athletes that I work with simply because it is quite user-friendly and it, it seems to be really good I do have a few problems with Garmin though and I want to share them today and it seems to be getting worse and with Polar putting a big push onto their units they've, they've compressed their GPS units they've got mint technology heart rates as good as it's ever been I think Garmin are in a sticky situation where if they don't lift their game up a little bit they're gonna to start to miss out they've capitalized the market for so long with their GPS heart rate monitors but now there's so many other brands, uh, Santo, obviously TomTom is, is big as well. I've got a lot of athletes that are starting to buy the TomTom units um, and then Polar as well lifting their game. And there's a lot of other sort of no branded gear out there as well. It seems to be working quite well. So I think Garmin need to lift their game a bit. And what I am really frustrated with with Garmin at the moment are their heart rate monitor straps. You seem to get about somewhere between 8 to 12 months out of a heart rate strap a soft heart rate strap and then they start to throw out really dodgy readings really high really low or just not registering it at all which is such a pain even when you get in there change the battery out you still get these faulty readings coming in and it's not just me I have so many athletes email me about this I uh, start to see it on their on their training peaks, on their training peaks data, and then we just can't get it right. The only way you can get it right by the seams of things is to get a new heart rate strap, which you know at a hundred plus bucks for these heart rate straps, it's a bit of a pain in the ass to be honest. So that's my number one beef is the heart rate straps. They just seem to be faulty after about that, you know, eight to twelve months mark. Nothing you can do about it, it seems, but apart from get a new strap, which is real pain. So Garmin, you need to sort that out. Second thing, in New Zealand, that Garmin no longer have a service center in New Zealand. Everything has to be sent to Australia to be any warranty coverage, which often means if you need something uh, sorted on your Garmin unit, you gotta send it away, and it can be away for you know four to six weeks, which is a real hassle as well. 
you know, first world problems for sure. But when an athlete, you know, has brought a unit specifically with the intention of training with it and helping it improve their performance, then it's a real pain for them to be without it for so long. Two things that really peeve me off about Garmin at the moment, the heart rate strap issue and then also the warranty in New Zealand. I am super keen to hear from Garmin if someone wants to have a chat about it or keen to hear from Polar about their units. I'm super keen to try them out and give you guys some feedback as well. So if you know any of those two people, get them to give and get in touch with me because I'm keen to uh, sort this out if we can. So that's the gear junkie uh, section. Looking at Garmin today, next week, something different. Hopefully it won't be me, be me moaning about something again, but giving you guys a bit of an in-depth thing on something new, something exciting. So there we go, gear junkie, done. This next section, what I wanted to do is call it Myth Buster. I want to get in there each week and bust a myth that's out there. Because there are so many myths when it comes to training and racing and sports science and exercise, whatever it is. And hopefully I can get in there, set things straight a little bit, inform you so you're better informed heading out there. The first myth that I wanted to look at it's not so much training related, but when I heard it, I was like, this is super cool. So I wanted to share it with you. And what the myth is, is you've probably heard it, is that merino wool that's used to make you know, a lot of uh, warm thermal type uh, clothing that you'd wear uh, in the winter contains naturally occurring chemicals that neutralizes the smell. You've probably seen um, Icebreaker advertise their thermal saying uh, they don't stink. And it is true, wool doesn't smell as much as a lot of other synthetic fabrics. And a lot of the time people think that is because of these natural chemicals that neutralizes the smell. But here's what actually stops merino wool from smelling. And I was quite, quite impressed with it. Even though sheep's wool contains lanolin, which is an oil that waterproofs the sheep, and it does in fact contain some antifungal and antibacterial properties, as soon as the wool is cleaned uh, and the raw, from the raw fleece, so they get sh the sheep get shorn, the, sh the fleece gets washed, and then it's actually made into the clothing. In that process, all of this uh, lanolin and um, antifungal and antibacterial properties are removed so it's not actually them that is stopping the smell or neutralizing the smell what it is is that the fibers of the wool are extremely absorbent so what it does is that it absorbs moisture and also the bacteria and it's the bacteria that cause the smell they absorb that into the fibers so that the smell cannot actually be released into the air for you to smell. Which I found was super interesting that your merino wool top, while it doesn't smell, 
it has a ton of bacteria absorbed into the fibers and those fibers are holding on to it and holding on to the smell so it's not actually getting out into the air for you to smell whereas synthetic fabrics such as polyester I don't know about you but my polyester um, tops get real stinky after a while and apparently this is why because the polyester tops they absorb the oil or the oil sits on the outside of the fibers because the fibers aren't very absorbent uh, is that the word aren't very good at absorption and the bacteria sit on the outside of the fibers munch away at you know the sweat and and stuff that comes off you during exercise and then releases you know their waste waste products which is what causes the smell and it just goes into the air so that you can smell it whereas the merino wool absorbs it holds on to it so you can't smell it so i found that i thought that was super super interesting i personally put this myth to a test and I think I must have found the limit of merino wool to be honest I had a pair of merino wool socks that I wore for 11 days as I rode from Cape Reinga at the top of New Zealand 3,000 kilometers to the bottom of New Zealand at Bluff 3,000 kilometers uh, 11 days wearing these socks for 18 hours per day every single day they were wet from river crossings and from sweat I tell you what, I don't know how absorbent merino wool is, but I think I found the limit because these socks absolutely stunk by the time I got to the end. Just ridiculously smelly. So there you have it. The wool isn't actually neutralizing or killing any of the bugs. Instead, it seems that they're binding the smelly odorants to the fibers so they don't escape into the air and so you don't actually smell them. It's very absorbent, so it has the capacity to accommodate a lot of them. There you have it, myth busted. Now did you hear in the news lately, it's quite a hot topic, that the World Anti-Doping Association is looking at reintroducing caffeine to the banned list which I thought was pretty interesting and there's been a little bit of media hype around it you know people aren't going to be able to drink their coffee now before races or whatever what I wanted to do is dive in take a little bit more of a look and see what this actually means uh, for those athletes competing in sports where they get drug tested in 2003 caffeine was removed from the World Anti-Doping Association prohibited list. So you used to not be able to have a certain amount of caffeine in your system, but they took it off the list. To have something added to the prohibited list, it has to achieve two of three criteria. And the criteria is the substance or method has the potential to enhance or does enhance performance in sport so caffeine ticks that box we know that caffeine improves performance the research on it is very very good and that's why I recommend taking caffeine for racing the second criteria 
is that the substance or method has the potential to risk an athlete's health. And the third criteria is that the World Anti-Doping Association has determined that the substance or method violates the spirit of the sport. So for a substance to become prohibited, it has to meet two of those three criteria. So it has to improve performance or have the potential to enhance performance. It has to be a potential health risk and or violate the spirit of the sport. Which is pretty interesting because when you think about those three criteria, you can see why it was removed. Yes, it improves performance. Does it pose a health risk for athletes is really interesting because caffeine is a naturally occurring substance and it's found in over 60 different plants and it is the most commonly used drug in the world as it's found in coffee, tea, chocolate uh, and many carbonated, obviously, energy drinks. So does it pose a health risk? Mm, it's debatable. The, the, the health risk comes in, I guess, is when athletes consume large amounts of caffeine in an attempt to boost their performance more, which is, which is wrong because more caffeine is not necessarily better. The level of caffeine which is shown to improve performance is about 1 to 3 milligrams per kg of body weight. If you go more than that, then you start getting negative side effects. Uh, if you go to 6 to 9 milligrams of caffeine per kg of body weight, you can get GI issues, nausea, shaking, uh, overstimulation, which can impact training, sleep, uh, and performance. So whether or not I think that classifies as a health risk, I'm not sure. The same can be said for carbohydrate. If you smash back a lot of carbohydrate gels, you can get GI issues and nausea as well but it's not on the banned list because that also improves performance as well. We know that. So whether or not caffeine meets these criteria, I don't know. Definitely it meets criteria number one, has the potential to enhance performance. Does it pose a health risk? Mm, not sure. It's a gray area, I guess. And number three, does it violate the spirit of the sport? And I guess this is where this is getting pulled up on. Does it violate the spirit of the sport? It's hard to say, I guess. They took it off because I guess they didn't think it did. Maybe bringing it back on because they think it does. Potentially, it's a gateway drug. Athletes start using this at a young age um, because it does improve performance, potentially. And that culture of taking supplements to improve performance, potentially, that could lead to other things. I don't know. I don't know. Um, if it does get reintroduced onto the band list, it will probably be reintroduced at the similar sort of threshold of what it was previously. So the previous threshold um, of blood caffeine levels, or sorry, uh, urine caffeine levels, in 2004, you had to have uh, urine levels less than 12 micrograms per milliliter. So what does that actually mean? What does that look like? That's about the equivalent of six to eight coffees, about 600 to 800 milligrams of caffeine. And when you think of those guidelines of one to three milligrams of caffeine per kg of body weight uh, for improved performance, that's what's been shown to improve performance. In all realistic, sort of in a realistic world, 
it's unlikely that they're going to meet those guidelines if they go over that there's probably a negative performance improvement anyway so why would you but I would say it's still probably pretty safe to fly under those levels uh, and still improve your performance even say a hundred k a hundred kg athlete taking on three milligrams per kg of body weight they're only going to be having 300 milligrams of caffeine and remember that level is probably going to be somewhere about 600 to 800 milligrams however it is because it is measured in the urine 12 micrograms per milliliter depending on how you absorb caffeine and how you metabolize caffeine those um, those changes in your urine levels could be different based on the person so it would definitely be something to keep in mind kind of like blood alcohol levels someone can smash back a bunch of alcohol and be completely sober someone can have one beer and be over the limit so keep keep that in mind would be would be my suggestion so this will be really interesting how this pans out at the moment coffee is on the monitoring list so they're looking into this to see if athletes are using coffee to improve their performance however that seems a bit strange to me because you're not going to be able to tell the difference between caffeine from coffee, caffeine from caffeine tablets, caffeine from you know, any other source once it's in the urine. So that's that's it's a wait and see really. Now I will be very very interested to see what happens. As a note, the uh, NCAA, which is the National College Athletics Association, I think, which is um, in America they already um, consider caffeine as a performance enhancer and it's already a banned substance for their events um, if they're exceeding 15 micrograms per milliliter which would be similar to the um, the, the levels that World Anti-Doping Association are looking at bringing in as well so if you have ever been busted I'd be good to hear from you if you have if you're competing in the NCAA governed sports in America and you have had a positive test for caffeine let me know or how does it work in America does it uh, do people still take caffeine even though it's a banned substance because they know they can take a small amount and still get the res uh, the desired performance enhancement I'm not sure be interesting to find out so yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens with this caffeine uh, debate or the, this caffeine um, investigation so uh, moving on from caffeine what I wanted to do now is dive into a segment that I've titled lessons from the lab and each week I want to bring you some research uh, and some lessons learnt from that research that you can apply to your training so lessons from the lab what I want to dive in today is a little bit of research that's out of the Netherlands about protein ingestion before bedtime to improve recovery. So what we know is that during the night, protein synthesis, which is the production of new proteins, drops or is low. And protein, as you probably know, is you know a really important component of your diet for muscle repair and recovery, the production of uh, new red blood cells, any cells in your body, connective tissue, 
uh, immune cells, pretty much everything. Protein building blocks build all of these things. So when we are looking at maximizing adaptation to improve performance, then maximizing protein synthesis rate is really, really important. So because it's low overnight, even if you have your protein um, intake following training, it's still low. So what this research group looked at was they gave uh, their participants an extra 20 grams of protein immediately before they went to sleep. And what they wanted to see is one, whether this protein was uh, digested and absorbed, and then two, whether or not this actually changed protein synthesis rate. So whether the body was able to process it and then actually use it. And what was really interesting that came out of the study was that the protein, the 20 grams of protein that was ingested immediately before sleep was found to be effectively digested and absorbed during the night time, which increased the amount of amino acids that were floating around in the bloodstream and was able to increase protein synthesis rate which is pretty cool because if we know that that protein synthesis is low during the night naturally if we are able to supplement with 20 grams of protein before immediately before we go to sleep then what we can actually do is get that recovery happening faster as we sleep whereas naturally it would be less. So what does this actually mean for you and how should you approach it? The exercise or the, the exercise that they used in the study was resistance exercise but I don't think that really matters to be honest because it's still an important thing for endurance athletes to tackle as well. So what I would suggest is during a hard training block or during multi-day races is have your normal recovery protocol following training or following racing where you're consuming carbohydrate and protein but then just before you go to bed have another 20 gram serving of protein and it's probably best to get this in a drink like a recovery shake sort of thing so that your body doesn't have to work hard to break down solid foods and then that extra 20 grams of protein immediately before you go to bed is going to help improve your recovery and it'll actually improve your recovery not just mask the symptoms as many of these so-called inverted commas recovery strategies do this will actually help it actually helps the underlying processes that lead to skeletal muscle adaptation so having that protein at night is seems to be quite an easy an effective way at improving your recovery so definitely something to look into if you want to boost that recovery so that was lessons from the lab what I want to do now is move into lessons from life and what I want to do over lessons for life is just bring you some thoughts on different problems that I have encountered like working with the athletes that I work with in the real world it's all very well having a look at research and lab data. What I want to do is make sure we can take that and apply it to the real world because that's what really counts. So, lessons from life. I get a question a lot about, will this work for me? 
will X work for me? And I always get this a lot of the time comments on videos um, and comments on articles about what is it best to do? Is it best to do interval training or is it best to do uh, endurance training? And one of the things about this is because there's there's data for both, there's evidence for both approaches, okay, and there's evidence for a combined approach. But when it comes to applying it to the individual, this is where it becomes the art of training. The science of training has done the work, but then the real art becomes applying it to the individual. So what's going to work for you? What I suggest when it comes to this debate between interval training or endurance training, there's obviously, and if you can't see this, it's you're probably, probably lost already, but it needs to be both. But where should you put your emphasis? I want to cover a few of those now. A couple of scenarios where potentially you could lean one way or the other. And the first is if you're just beginning, you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck doing just steady state endurance training. You're not going to have to put in the effort of, say, in, uh, interval training. And interval training increases the risk of injury as well. So if you're doing steady state training, you're going to get the biggest return for the effort that you're putting in. So it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. If you have been thrashing out miles upon miles upon miles for years and years and years, then getting out and doing some interval training is probably going to help you a lot. There's that law of diminishing returns. The more you do something, the less of a return you're going to get on it. So if you've been doing traditional type endurance training for a long period of time, then the return that you're getting from that is going to be diminished. So you need to change something. And getting into a good head out of interval type training is often what that person needs or that type of athlete, because you see them all the time, to accelerate their performance to a new level. In saying that as well, what I have done with a lot of athletes quite successfully is if they've been working, doing a lot of interval work and endurance work, it's the typical sort of you know weekend warrior. You train really hard during the week, and then you put in some long sessions in the in the weekend. And if I've got an athlete that's been doing that for for quite a while, quite a few training phases, building up to different races, what I find is it it's really really effective to put them on quite a high mileage program or, or larger duration to push the duration out again. Dial back the intensity, push out the duration. So there's never one right way to do anything, really. It's all very situation-specific. And as a rule of thumb, I would say take a look at your training, see what you've been doing a lot of, and then change your approach to do what you haven't been doing a lot of. Because the body is very, very adaptable. It'll adapt to whatever stimulus you throw at it. If that's interval training, it'll adapt to it pretty quickly. And what I often find is if you've been doing a lot of interval training, then the body loves getting back into some aerobic work and it will thrive on that. Really dial up that aerobic work 
you'll get some really good results from it and then you'll be able to build your interval training back on top. Likewise, if you haven't been doing any interval training, then just dialing up that intensity, people will usually just explode to the next level when, they, when their body gets a sniff of some sort of intensity that's just not long, slow stuff. So have a think about your training. Do you do quite a lot of long stuff without much fast stuff? Or do you do quite a lot of intensity without much long stuff? Or do you have just this mash of everything that leaves you quite tired? If you're new to, to you know endurance sport, maybe you're competing in your first triathlon or multi-sport race or preparing for your first marathon, then pick the low-hanging fruit. Get out and do some miles. Just build up that time that you're training. The body responds very well to that in the first instance. But once you've picked that low-hanging fruit, you're going to have to work a little bit harder because those, that law of diminishing returns is going to start creeping in. So that's the lesson from the real world this week. Take a look at your training. What are you doing a lot of? And then do something different to that. If you've got any questions about that or you'd like more specifics, feel free to record a voice question. Send it through to me. I'll do my best to answer it. If you want more specifics about your specific situation, or feel free to add some comments about maybe how you've changed things with your training and notice some big results. So there we have it. We're going to wrap it up now. Thanks for listening. If you've got any questions, please send them through. Ideally, as a voice message question and I'll do my best to answer those like I say I'm going to prioritize the voice message questions over the written questions please like and subscribe if you've found this useful I want to keep giving you the good information so you can train hard but most importantly train smart now next episode we're going to have a special guest on giving you some insight into um, ultra endurance racing and a few tips from them so until next week get out there and put this information into action it doesn't matter how good a training plan is it doesn't matter if it's been designed by the world's best sports scientists and coaches it doesn't matter how new the research is how fancy your GPS and heart rate monitor is if you don't get out there and do the work, nothing's going to work for you. So get out there, train hard, but most importantly, train smart.